Good morning. Thanks for bringing the church into this makeshift auditorium this morning. Uh, excited to have you guys. My name's Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new, um, glad that you're here. Uh, if you are a transplant who is now exploring local churches in the area and are trying to figure out what's going on on the scene and whether this may or may not be uh, a church that would be good for you to connect with, would love to meet you after the service, set up a time to even grab coffee, answer any questions that you have. Uh, we are on the forefront of launching into the fall, and so it's about to get really exciting around here, though it has not been boring over the course of the summer. We have spent a great deal of time in Galatians chapter 5, uh, where Paul lays out his listing of the virtues that make up the fruit of the Spirit. And so the purpose of our summer study, entitled The Nine Virtues, is to understand what it actually means to cultivate the character of Jesus, um, based on this list of virtues. Uh, unashamedly, we've been saying this since day one of this series, uh, we don't believe that salvation comes by character cultivation, but rather by faith alone. Uh, by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and work of Jesus alone. And yet where a root of faith exists, the fruit of cultivated character will too exist. But the question is, what does that look like? What does that mean to cultivate the character of Jesus? How do we do that? How do we walk by the Spirit in Paul's language that you find in Galatians 5? And so from the very beginning, as a framework for this series, I've said this week in and week out, hoping that, that it just hammers into our minds a little deeper and works its way into our hearts. It happens through, one, a dependence upon the Holy Spirit, an acknowledgement that uh, we can't do this on our own, that we deeply need the third person of the Trinity if we have any hope of these virtues being stirred up within us, if we have any hope of growing and being conformed into the image of Jesus, as Paul says in Romans 8, but we're not talking about a passive dependence, rather an active dependence, that as we trust the Spirit, we abide in Jesus. Uh, we, we fix our gaze upon Jesus. We seek to spend time with Jesus. We, we pound the nail a little deeper in the sinful nature, uh, helping the sinful nature toward its ultimate death. And lastly, we breathe life into the new self, the new nature, through the ordinary means of God's grace, time in the Scriptures, Time spent in prayer, time spent uh, brushing shoulders with others who deeply love Jesus, time spent unearthing idols in our hearts and understanding what it means to preach the gospel to ourselves and so forth and so on. And so if you'd like a more comprehensive unpacking of everything that's up on the screen behind me right now, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the first message in this series. I think you'll find it to be very helpful. The fruit of the Spirit is love, Paul says, joy, and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Thus far, we've looked at seven of those nine virtues. And so this morning, we're going to take a look at a passage on the virtue of gentleness. And so if you have a Bible, you can open up to Matthew chapter 5. We'll be in verse 5 this morning. If you don't own a Bible, there should be one under one of the seats uh, in the row in front of you nearby. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible, that Bible's yours. Take it for free. Let me just go ahead and pray for us, and we'll jump in, and we'll get to work. God, all of these virtues that make up the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 are critical. Um, in fact, they, they're all intertwined with one another. They all bleed into one another. Um, 
And yet this morning as we dive into this virtue of gentleness, there's a lot at stake. And so I pray, one, that we would walk away with a greater understanding of what, what's meant by this very word, gentle or gentleness, as it pertains to the scriptures. Secondly, that we would see just what's on the line in terms of your stirring of this virtue within us. And thirdly, that we would see this virtue in the face of Christ, that we would see that the gospel is our only hope for the empowerment of such a virtue as this, God. So would you do these things by the power of the Spirit, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Ten words in most of our Bibles. Now, the first question that begs to be answered, you may be inclined to ask, why a passage on meekness? I thought we were going after gentleness this morning. Um, Here's why. The the words in your Bible translated gentle or gentleness and and meek or meekness actually come from the same Greek root word. In fact, uh, when you look up that word in a Greek New Testament, which I'm sure all of us own one of those, right? When you look it up, the word gentle and meek are defined as gentle and mild. So even the word gentle, by definition in the Bible, is gentle, which is super helpful to all of us, right? And you're going to see why this is such a complex virtue in just a moment. Um, Because those two words come from the same root, we can use them fairly synonymously in Scripture. And so that's what I'm going to do this morning. Um, Just know that uh, what we're talking about this morning as I use those words interchangeably, gentleness and meekness, we're going after the same virtue found in Galatians chapter 5. In fact, in some of your Bibles, it may actually be translated Galatians chapter 5, meekness rather than gentleness. The reason we're in Matthew 5 this morning is this. What better starting point than to look at what Jesus has to say about this virtue? As a reminder, when you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, this is the picture. This is the scene. As the Old Testament curtain closes, there's no resolution because the promised Messiah, Jesus, has yet to come. Uh, I've used this example before. It's like a movie that ends with no resolution. Some of those movies you guys love because you like that it speaks to the reality of humanity Some of you scream, yes, there's not always a happy ending. This is glorious. Um, If you're like me, you hate movies like that. And I've used this example before. Mine is the breakup. At the end of that movie, you got Vince Vaughn's character and Jennifer Aniston's character encountering one another street side. And we have no idea of what happens. Uh, We don't know if they go on to live uh, to an old age um, as uh, single people or if they get back together, if they find someone else down the road. There's no clue as to whether or not there's a happy ending. That's your Old Testament. So everything goes dark for roughly 400 years. There's no prophet that speaks on behalf of God. There's no scripture recorded for 400 years coming out of the Old Testament. And the next record that we have in terms of scripture is when light enters the darkness. In humility, the second person of the eternal Godhead, Jesus Christ himself, sets aside his crown and scepter and enters into the slums of human history, being born amongst barnyard animals in a smelly trough. The God who created everything had to be taught how to spell the very things that he created. The God who carved out mountains and valleys had to be taught how to carve wood. Matthew, in the first few chapters of his gospel account, goes to great lengths to show us that this Jesus, born amongst barnyard animals, is the hero that the entire Old Testament has been promising and foreshadowing. It's really crazy when you think about it. 
Matthew's gospel account up to this point is meant to scream, don't miss it. He's here, guys. He's here. As the curtain closes on Matthew chapter 4, the chapter preceding this morning's chapter, Jesus has been preaching and teaching. He's been casting out demons and healing people in mass. And as a result, he's starting to draw a pretty big crowd, right? You can imagine you go down to Piedmont Fayette and start healing people of afflictions, epileptics, paralytics. You're going to draw a crowd, right? Jesus draws a crowd, and it's not some homogenous, everybody looks and thinks and believes the same kind of crowd. This is a very diverse crowd. He draws people from Galilee and the Decapolis, people from Jerusalem and Judea, people from beyond the Jordan. So we're talking about Jews and Gentiles, both the irreligious and the religious. And Jesus sees this crowd, and we're told that he ascends a mountain and invites the people to draw near. It's, it's really an unbelievable scene. God clothed in human flesh, calling fallen humanity to himself. And the first word out of Jesus' mouth is not the word ruined or hopeless or condemned. It's the word blessed. God enters the messiness of this fallen humanity, and he says, there's hope. And not just some magic eight ball horoscope kind of hope. Jesus isn't some philosopher throwing out fortune cookie one-liners on a hillside. He's offering the kind of hope that only God can offer to a godless, hopeless generation. And it's a hope offered to the least likely of recipients. If we could see this crowd on this hillside, just imagine the ragtag group of misfits that Jesus is drawing to himself. What Jesus is about to say in a number of ways, one of which we'll look at this morning, is this. The way up is actually down. That what you think is true about God just might actually be quite the opposite. That you want to be a somebody, become a nobody. You want the crown of glory, sell everything that you have. You want to keep your life, lose it for my sake and the gospels. These are crazy statements, right? That's the upside down nature of the kingdom of God. If that doesn't sound just a little bit absurd to you, even still now, if you're a Christian, you have not sat with the concept of the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God quite long enough. Jesus opens his mouth, and he turns everything upside down on its head. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The word blessed in the original language actually means enviable. So Jesus says, This is the enviable life. To follow me is the enviable life. Blessed are not the haughty, the the harsh, the arrogant, the, the abrasive, the aggressive. It's the meek. It's the meek whom God blesses. So some in this room may be asking, how are the how are the meek enviable? I mean, this is upside down thinking to most people, is it not? The world says if you want to inherit the earth, if you want to gain in this life, it's going to be through conquest. It's going to be through clawing your way to the top and stepping on everyone, trampling them underfoot as you go. If you want to feel better about yourself, it's going to come by stepping on others, by belittling them, by conquering them, which is really easy to do. It's really easy to stand at the top of the mountain, the bullies of the world, and yet Jesus says, that's not the enviable life. That's a sad, pathetic existence. R.T. Kendall in his commentary says it this way. He says, the greatest liberty is having nothing to prove. Only the gospel can afford that. The gospel declares I have nothing to prove because Christ has proved it all on my behalf. That's true freedom. 
So how do we unpack this idea, this virtue of gentleness, of meekness? Again, I said it before, I'll say it again. It's not easy. We're talking about one of the most complex, confusing concepts in all of the English language. I, I, I sat with my Greek New Testament this week, entered into a new level of nerddom, um, sat with several commentaries this week, and none of them give a one-word answer. It's not like, hey, if you want to understand meekness, just think about this one word. Every old dead guy that I read this week said, if you want to understand meekness, okay, you need to look at it from this angle, and then we're going to come at it from this other angle, and then this other angle. And the reason for that is because this virtue is a multifaceted jewel. You can't understand it. You can't reduce it to one word in the English language. It's kind of like the cross of Jesus Christ, a multifaceted jewel. If you turn a jewel, it shines with a new brilliance every time you turn it, right? The cross of Jesus Christ works that way. Jesus saved me from the wrath of God by absorbing God's wrath on my behalf. Glorious. Turn the jewel. Jesus saved me from sin's shame by being shamed in my place. Beautiful. Turn the jewel again. Jesus saved me from sin's curse by becoming a curse in my place. And we could go on and on. Jesus saved me from sin's guilt by being pronounced guilty in my place. Jesus saved me from my inability to perform perfectly by giving me his perfect righteous record. And on and on and on we could go. Similarly, meekness, gentleness is a multifaceted jewel. And so here's how we're going to approach this this morning. We're going to first start by talking about what meekness is not. We're going to diffuse some of the unhelpful ways of thinking about this particular virtue. And then we'll, we'll just begin to spin the jewel and look at a few different facets. So let's begin with what meekness is not. First of all, meekness is not laziness or slothfulness. Someone who's never involved may appear to be meek. Because they're, they're never really a part of the conversation. They're always on the peripheral edges of everything. But meekness is not to be equated with inactivity, standing on the peripheral edges. Meekness is also not an easygoing disposition. A person who's never worried, never concerned in life, has a, a laid-back demeanor about them, may appear to be meek. But that's not meekness either. Meekness is not a personality trait. It's a gift of the Spirit, the third person of the Godhead. Meekness is not niceness. A dog can be nice. Cats, maybe a different story. Just kidding, cat lovers. That was a joke. An animal can have a nice disposition, but it doesn't mean that your pet is meek. Meekness is not timidity. It's not to be confused with lacking bravery or courage. To be meek is not to be a human doormat, to be walked all over by anyone and everyone in all situations. And last but not least, meekness is not peace at all costs. The man or woman who would compromise anything in the name of let's just all get along is not meek. And, and to be sure, there is a need for some of us to learn what the word compromise means, myself included. But there are moments where compromise is unhealthy. There are plenty of times in an effort to remain faithful to the gospel that, that the Apostle Paul says, don't sell out. Peace at all costs, even if it means compromising your Christianity, that's not meekness. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, Meekness is compatible with great strength. Meekness is compatible with great authority and power. The meek man is one who may so believe in standing for the truth that he would die for it if necessary. 
The martyrs were meek, but they were never weak. Strong men, yet meek men. So meekness is not laziness. It's not an easygoing disposition. It's not niceness. It's not timidity. It's not peace at all costs. So what is it? Let's begin to spin this jewel and just take a look at one facet at a time and hopefully wrap our minds around this a little better. First of all, meekness is poverty of spirit directed toward others. It has to do with my view of and my attitude toward myself first and foremost. And it has to do with how I express that view of myself in the way I relate to other people. The the first two statements that come out of Jesus' mouth in Matthew chapter 5 are statements of deficiency, are they not? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. These statements are meant to empty us of ourselves so that God can fill us with those things that, that make us enviable. If you don't see yourself as poor in spirit, if you don't mourn your sin, you'll never be meek. Rather, rather you'll glory in yourself. You'll pride yourself on all that you think is praiseworthy about you. You'll assume a position of entitlement and look down your nose at others when they fail to meet your demands. Think of it this way. Picture yourself in an, in a, an elevator in a big city high rise and you got just dozens upon dozens of buttons and you got that obnoxious kid that terrifies you that he's going to push every one of them, right? And you're never going to get where you're trying to go. But then at the top of it all, there's one button with a capital P on it, which stands for penthouse. And there's another button at the very bottom with a capital B on it, which stands for basement. To be poor in spirit is to be willing to press the button with the capital B on it. To be brought low and to see your deep need for Jesus. Remember, the way up is down. Now let me ask you this. When you sit in the basement of a building, do you have any need to fear falling? Of course not, right? When you're in the basement, you can't be brought any lower. Falling only happens at elevated levels. The fearful are the ones who sit in the penthouse of religiosity and look down on everyone else. They're terrified of losing their position. They're terrified of losing their status. And so they treat others however they have to to keep from falling. Coming back to A.W. Pink, he says this, Meekness causes the believer to bear patiently those insults and injuries which he receives at the hands of his fellows and makes him ready to accept instruction or admonition from the least of the saints, moving him to think highly of others than of himself. Meekness enables the Christian to endure provocations without being inflamed by them. Rather, he remains cool when others get heated. You see, when you come face to face with the reality that you're not middle class in spirit, that you're not rich in spirit, that you've got nothing to offer God except your sins in the empty hands of faith, it it changes the way that you relate to other people. It's really quite amazing in some sense that if you're meek, you have absolutely no idea that you're meek. R.T. Kendall says it this way. He says, meekness is an unconscious anointing. You might be aware of being broken or of dignifying a trial by not complaining to people or to God, but you will never be aware of being meek. In this particular beatitude, Jesus describes a virtue that one doesn't feel. And if you think you've got it, you just lost it. It makes me think of the story of Moses in Exodus chapter 34, 
Moses is coming down from Mount Sinai. He's got the Ten Commandments in hand. I've always wondered how he toted those bad boys down. Did he have like a wheelbarrow or something? I don't know. But um, we're told that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Moses had no clue. Meanwhile, everyone around him saw it plain as day. That's how meekness works. If you're meek, you have no idea that you're meek, and yet others see it in you. And if you're not meek, it's plain as day to other people too. So congratulations to the not-so-meek. You've been found out. Everyone knows it because by its very nature... It involves the way that you interact with other people. So there's one facet. Poverty of spirit directed toward other people. The other facets will simply help us to understand what it actually looks like to direct poverty of spirit toward others in a more tangible way that we can wrap our minds around. One way is through humility. Obviously, this goes hand in hand with being poor in spirit, right? By definition, to be poor in spirit is to be humbled before the Lord, And humbled people act humbly toward others. Charles Spurgeon. I'm going to quote him a lot this morning. If I could have wakened him from the dead, I would have had him preach instead of me. Because he handles it so much better than I can. He says this. The meek man knows that he is only a man. He also knows that the best of men are but men at best. And he does not even claim to be one of the best of men. Can you see how that's the enviable life? The life free from the empty chase of self-exaltation. If it's true that blessed are the meek, blessed are the gentle, then it's also true that cursed are the proud, the arrogant, the self-righteous. The curse that they, they bear is the empty chase that will always leave them grasping for glory. A chase that will always leave them fearful of falling from their lofty perch of self grandeur Similar to humility... It's having a teachable spirit, a willingness to bend. Psalm 25.9 says this, The Lord leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. That with humility comes teachability. The meek, the gentle are those who listen more than they talk. Those who have a desire to learn just as much as, if not more than, a desire to teach. Again, being on the bottom floor of a city high rise, why would we think that we need to speak and teach more than we need to listen and learn. If it's true that blessed are the meek, blessed are the gentle, then it's also true that cursed are the know-it-alls. The curse that they bear is one of never growing because they think they're all grown up. And then in the same stream as humility and teachability is approachability. Spurgeon says it this way. He says, I know some professing Christians who are very harsh and arrogant. You would not think of going to tell them your troubles. You could not open your heart to them. They do not seem to be able to come down to your level. They are up on a mountain and they speak down to you as a poor creature far below them. Anybody met these people before? That is not the true Christian spirit, Spurgeon says. That is not being meek. The Christian who is truly superior to others among whom he moves is just the man who lowers himself to the level of the lowest for the general good of all. Jesus models this really well. Upon finishing the Sermon on the Mount, if you read further past Matthew chapter 5, you see Jesus descend the mountain, and he's immediately approached by a leper. 
the outcast of society. The only way that happens is if Jesus is approachable, right? Meekness, gentleness makes a person approachable. Are you approachable? Another facet of this multifaceted jewel is contentment. It's another way that poverty of spirit is directed toward others. The the not-so-meek person is always grasping for more, striving at all costs to reach the penthouse. Whatever it takes, even if it means stepping on others on my way to the top, so be it. Spurgeon responds in this way to this particular facet. He says, the meek man is no Napoleon who will wade through human blood to reach a throne and shut the gates of mercy on mankind. The meek man is no miser hoarding up with an all-devouring greed everything that comes to his hand and adding house to house and field to field as long as he lives. The meek man has a laudable desire to make use of his God-given talents and to find for himself a position in which he may do more good to his fellow men. But he is not unrestful, anxious, fretful, grieving, or grasping. He is contented and thankful. You see how that's the enviable life. If it's true that blessed are the meek, blessed are the gentle, then it's also true that cursed are the grasping, the fretful, the anxious. The curse that they bear is that of Ebenezer Scrooge, the miser's life. The hoarding of everything that you have and the constant grasping at everything that you don't. I love this quote from A.W. Pink. He says this, this would make a great fortune cookie statement. The humble Christian is far happier in a cottage than the wicked in a palace. Another facet of this virtue known as meekness or gentleness is patience with others. It's really amazing when you think about it how these virtues that make up the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 just bleed into one another. You, you can't get away from them. They're all intertwined. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, The man who is truly meek is the one who is amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. After all, we're talking about a humbling encounter with the true God, right? An encounter that uh, reveals to us that we're spiritually bankrupt. The meek person has no reputation. Jesus is his or her reputation. Thus, there's no reputation to protect. The meek person can patiently endure by the power of the Spirit, even in moments of injustice, even in moments of slander. See, the the suffering usually comes at the hands of those who are in the penthouse, thinking well of themselves. Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they sit in the basement looking at those who are spitting on them from the top, and they see things as they truly are. They know that the penthouse of religiosity is a miserable place to live. And they also know that the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And so they patiently endure. I love this quote from Spurgeon. He says this, a very missional quote at the heart. He says, The anvil stands still while the hammer beats upon it, but one anvil wears out many hammers. Likewise, gentleness and patience will ultimately win the day that some of the cruel hammers of this world will be won to Jesus because of the way you react to them. This is the way of the cross, isn't it? Jesus patiently endured the suffering, 
the injustice that came at the hands of those dwelling in the penthouse of religiosity. And in doing so, how many millions of hammers have been broken before the Lord and turned into anvils? It's quite amazing. It's through the patient enduring of injustice that comes our way that men and women are broken before the Lord and brought into the family of God. And let's not trivialize it. This is hard, right? This is the facet that separates the men from the boys, the women from the girls, the meek from the not-so-meek. There are a lot of people in this world who are gentle, who are meek as long as everything's going their way, as long as life doesn't get hard. True meekness, empowered by the Spirit, empowered by God's grace, endures in the face of persecution. It endures in the face of suffering. It endures in the face of cruelty. So let me ask this question. How do you respond when others try you? When you're on the receiving end of a moment of injustice. If it's true that blessed are the meek, blessed are the gentle, then it's also true that cursed are the retaliators, the backbiters, the slanderers. The curse that they bear is one of always trying to even the score by overcoming hate with hate. What a miserable, bitter life to live. Some of you, maybe that's your experience right now. You've been harboring bitterness towards someone for longer than you can remember. And you're actually in bondage if that's you. God offers something far better than that. Similar to patience. And this is the last one that that I'll point us out to. You could probably study the scriptures for yourself and find even more facets that make up this virtue. But similar to patience is a willingness to forgive. That Jesus didn't just patiently endure the suffering and injustice that came at the hands of his enemies, he he pleaded with the Father to forgive his enemies. Luke 23, 34, crazy words come out of the mouth of Jesus in the midst of his crucifixion. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They're blind to the fact that they sit in the penthouse of religiosity, which is nothing more than a waiting room to hell. Father, save them before they walk through that door. That's the heart of your king, Christian. It makes sense that your king would go on to say in the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies. The curse that they bear is one of sitting in that penthouse, completely clueless of the reality that awaits them, completely clueless that they will one day fall from the top. And so we pray, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They're spiritually dead. Their hearts are darkened. They're blind. They can't see straight. The world says, cursed are the meek, for they shall be walked on, trampled underfoot. Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That promise is taken directly from Psalm 37, verse 11, which says this, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. This is both a present and a future tense promise. It's a present and a future tense blessing. It's present tense in that going back to everything that we've been talking about this morning, the meek are free from the empty chase of self-exaltation, a chase that can only leave us grasping. The meek are free to learn and grow because they don't think that they're all grown up. The meek are free from hoarding everything that they have and grasping at everything that they don't. The meek are free from the exhausting game of trying to keep score with others. The meek are free to forgive others rather than soaking in the bitterness of an unforgiving spirit. That's present tense stuff. Those are present tense blessings offered from God. 
And yet there is a future fulfillment of this promise as well. To inherit the earth is future in the sense that we will inherit all that is Christ's. That those in the basement will one day sit in the true penthouse. As Paul says in Romans 8, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs with God and fellow heirs with Christ. That's crazy. I can't fully wrap my mind around that one. Every time I look at verses like that, it hurts my head. If you're a Christian, Jesus' inheritance is your inheritance. That's why Paul could say in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, that we have nothing and yet we possess everything. To inherit the, the earth is to inherit the king and his kingdom. We sit in the basement knowing that the true penthouse is ours. The proud, the self-righteous sit in the penthouse of religiosity, looking down on the meek and crying out, you fool. And yet the meek man, the meek woman is no fool. Perhaps you're familiar with the famous quote from Jim Elliott. He says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. It's not he who dies with the most toys wins. It's he who dies in the basement of meekness wins. Again, it's the upside down nature of the kingdom of God. Seems really backwards, doesn't it? Consider this question by Spurgeon. He asks this. At the present moment, who is mightier? Caesar with his legions or Christ with his cross? Right now, who's mightier? When all earthly forces are overthrown, Spurgeon says, Christ's kingdom will still stand. Nothing is mightier than meekness. And it is the meek who inherit the earth in that sense. Now, it seems like a great deal is on the line based on all that this virtue encompasses. And so I decided to do a little homework this week. I was curious to know what other passages of Scripture do we find this word that we find in Galatians 5? And what does Paul use that word to declare is at stake? And I just want to share with you some of the situations in which this particular virtue is championed so that you can really practically, tangibly wrap your mind around what's at stake in terms of the Spirit stirring this within us. Here are a few things that I learned in terms of where gentleness shines. Number one. A spirit of gentleness can draw a straying child back to the Lord. 1 Corinthians 4.21, Paul says, What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? So Paul, as a spiritual father, is admonishing his children in the faith. And to be sure, sometimes it's a rod of discipline that draws someone back into the fold, but sometimes it's a spirit of gentleness, which is why Paul says elsewhere in Galatians 6.1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. You never know who you might draw back into the arms of Jesus by way of a gentle spirit. Do you know anyone who's veered off the gospel path into the ditch of religion or irreligion? What does that interaction between you and them look like? Has it been helpful based on what you're hearing this morning? Has it been fueled by a spirit of gentleness? 
Secondly, a spirit of gentleness can unify the church. Paul says in his, his great treatise on church unity, Ephesians chapter 4, the first three verses, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the, of, uh, the Spirit in the bond of peace. Embracing the virtue of gentleness has a way of crippling divisiveness in the church. It has a way of bringing people together for the sake of Christ and his gospel. It has a way of of crushing uh, this thing within us that feels like we need to make secondary and tertiary issues primary and die on those hills when really we don't, when really it's not helpful to the unity of the church. This virtue of gentleness has a way of combating that within us. Third, a spirit of gentleness can soften our hearts to receive God's word. James chapter 1 verse 21 says this, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. That it's the meek whose hearts are like softened soil, fertile for God's word to more deeply root itself. If we have any hope of growing in the gospel, we must embrace this virtue. If you come to the scriptures often and you go, man, there's there's just nothing being cultivated within me as I spend time with the word. James 1.21 is very helpful. It might be sin that's causing that, that disconnect, which is why James says, put away all wickedness. But it might be that we're coming to the scriptures with the mentality of dissecting it and conquering it rather than being conquered by the very Bible itself. Lastly, a spirit of gentleness can win people over to Jesus. Second Timothy chapter two, verses twenty-four through twenty-six say this: "And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with what." gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Notice that it's not that we abandon truth. There's a correcting of our opponents. So so there's a speaking of truth into error. But when we bring gentleness alongside truth, it has a way of melting hearts. 1 Peter 3.15 says this, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. That word defense, it's the Greek word apologia. It's where we get our word apologetics, this idea of making a reason case for Christian faith. And so uh, maybe you've read some books on apologetics, and and they're really helpful in terms of uh, defeating uh, opponents of truth. And yet, oftentimes, there's this absence of these last seven words in this verse. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. Some of the greatest apologists that I found myself with an earshot of at the local Starbucks or elsewhere do not embrace the last part of this verse. 
And it's very devastating for Christianity as we seek to move the gospel forward. The question we have to ask ourselves is, is my goal to win the argument or the person? Because here's the deal. When you clothe your apologetics in gentleness, in respect, you have a much better chance of actually winning both. And so I think the final question this morning is this. How does anyone become meek? How do we do that? Just put ourselves on a 12-step program toward meekness? Go grab a, a good book on meekness at the local Barnes and Noble? Well, it certainly never hurts to look at Jesus, which is where we started this morning, to look at how he treats us. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 29, famous words. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Aren't you glad that Jesus is gentle with you? Not brash, not harsh, not domineering. When we're harsh with others, when we're brash with others, when we're domineering in our relationships with others, it reveals at a fundamental level that we do not get the gospel. Or maybe we do get the gospel, but we're not believing the gospel in that moment. Again, it's, it's why it's so critical to preach the gospel to yourself. And again, if that language is new to you, stick around for a little while longer. I promise it will get unpacked uh, very purposefully for you. We daily need to be reminded of and to, to declare to ourselves the gentleness of Jesus toward us. A gentleness that we don't deserve. A gentleness that's ours by grace alone. As we continually come face to face with the gentleness of Jesus in dealing with us and our sin, it has a way of cultivating gentleness in us. So let me ask you, this is a great question to sit with as we prepare for communion in just a couple minutes. How has Jesus been gentle with you recently? It's a great question to think about. Whatever the answer is to that question, soak in that for a while. Soak in that until it messes with your heart in a glorious way. And alongside that practice, pray for and trust the Spirit to move within you. Final quote of the morning, R.T. Kendall says this, If one is truly meek, it is only because something very wonderful has happened. A sovereign operation of the Holy Spirit. God moved in at some stage and gave the person who began with being poor in spirit a quiet promotion. We continually soak in the beauty and wonder of a God who would pour out his wrath on Jesus so that he could pour out his gentleness on us. We continually soak in the ways that Jesus is gentle toward us. And as we soak in the truth of the gospel, we plead with the Spirit of God to do what only he can do. Why, why do we immediately become devastated when we realize that we're dependent upon the Spirit? You ever thought about that? Whenever we realize that there is no 12-step program, all of a sudden we go into panic mode. Do we think that he can do it, but he would rather not? I mean, don't you think that he wants to answer that prayer? Or, or do you think that God just loves arrogance so much that he'd rather leave us that way? Ask him in faith and trust him to do what you can't do. 
Those are poverty of spirit kinds of prayers. Those are the kinds of prayers that God loves to answer. In a moment, we're going to take communion. If you're a Christian, this meal is for you. Uh, James will call us forward in just a couple minutes. Uh, We take communion here by taking the bread and dipping it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. Again, as I just mentioned, as you prepare for that moment to come up and to receive of the elements, I would encourage you just to simply sit with that question. In recent history, how has Jesus been gentle with me? In a moment when I anticipated harshness, um, brashness from him, when that's really maybe more of what I deserved, and yet God was kind. Jesus entered in. He, he, he came toward me yet again. And bring that, bring that truth with you to the table as you receive the elements this morning. If you're not a Christian, my hope is that what you've heard this morning is compelling. Uh, the case made for the life lived apart from this virtue and, and the case made for life lived uh, in light of this virtue, and to understand that this virtue can't be mustered in human strength. This is is a virtue going back to Galatians 5 that encompasses the fruit of the Spirit, that it's those who have come to Jesus and put their faith in the person and work of Jesus who have received the Spirit, who are indwelt by the Spirit, who have any hope of this life that doesn't grasp after and claw after any and everything, this life that doesn't seek to trample everyone underfoot on the way to the top, that the gospel is our only hope for this kind of life. And so my prayer for you is that God is opening your eyes right now to turn to Christ and to receive him by faith. Let me pray for us that God would work in our hearts and that uh, as this virtue is stirred within us, that it would create a deeper unity within the church and a greater mobilization as we move out into the reaches of our community. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.